Nisambulubina Kai listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Go Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up. This is uh, a very sad state of affairs. The opposition parties have been hamstrung. We speak with the Fiji Opposition People's Alliance Party leader, Siti Veni Rambuka, about his party being investigated by the Fiji Independent Commission Against Corruption. And this program, and whether it's in Australia or in New Zealand, is demand driven. With Samu and Vanuatu both expressing concerns about a labour drain from participating in labour mobility schemes, we talk with a researcher about some of the issues arising from the increasing demand for Pacific workers. As Fijians await the announcement of a date for the general election, candidates under the People's Alliance Party are being questioned by Fiji's anti-corruption agency. Party leader Sitiveni Rambuka was recently contacted by the Fiji Independent Commission Against Corruption and this afternoon himself paid a visit to the commission where they informed him of the latest developments. The commission has itself refused to make any comments at this time regarding which provisions of the law these investigations are taking place under. But Mr Rambuka says they're based on concerns raised by other political parties. Anzit Pacific reporter Rachel Nath spoke to Sidiveni Rambuka and began by asking him about what led up to this afternoon's events. Thank you very much. On uh, Friday on my way to the village, uh, they managed to get through to me and uh, tell me that they had a few questions to ask. Uh, and I said, I'm in Vonolebu and I'd be back on Tuesday. That was yesterday. I got back yesterday and uh, went to them today when I didn't hear from them again, so I just went. But I uh, made a statement before I went in to say that this is uh, a very sad state of affairs where the opposition parties have been uh, hamstrung by a lot of the bureaucratic things that are going on and questions and complaints made about us and against us. So I I went in to uh, find out what they were after. They sort of... uh, informed me that they had started questioning uh, two members of the party and just to ask for my cooperation as they continued to uh, ask members of the party, which, which I gave them. And I said, look, that's your duty. We will have to abide by the uh, provisions of the law and uh, facilitate your duty. And so, um, Mr. Mbuka, were you told under what provisions of the law these uh, questioning against the other candidates would be uh, take place? They would have been told that. I mean, the candidates taken in for questioning would have been told uh, what the complaint was about and against which provisions. Uh, they didn't tell me that. They just said that we will be, we have spoken to two of your candidates, or provisional candidates, and uh, there are a few more. So I said to them, well, that is the law. We will have to answer your questions. That's part of your duty and part of our duty. So I understand that you mentioned this um, questioning process follows after the Fiji First uh, complaints made to the commission. Is that correct? Uh, the complaint was made by the General Secretary of the Fiji First Party, uh, also our Attorney General, uh, Mr. Syed Kayum, and... Uh, I said it is a very sad indication of the state of affairs in Fiji, where the political opposition political parties are hamstrung by the uh, uh, high-handedness of the current government uh, and their political party, and the fact that uh, their general secretary is also the the attorney general and minister responsible for elections. Uh, we will have to be very careful about what we do. It is just a 
very high-handed attitude that they take on uh, political parties in opposition. Yes, and Mr. Mbuka, would you say that this um, event of today is a possible retaliation or response to the, the complaints put forward by your party to the Electoral Commission? Uh, our complaint in this went in at about the same time. It went further to uh, FICAC earlier. Ours has not been preferred to FICAC. I do not know what their response has been. I believe uh, the uh, supervisor of elections has said that there is no no grounds for our complaints, and perhaps that is interpretation of uh, that aspect of the electoral law. Okay, so has the Electoral Commission come back to you with any statements on your complaints? Uh, not the Commission, but the uh, Supervisor of Election has uh, made a comment, made some remarks about that, uh, whether they have been communicated back to the office, office uh, of the People's Alliance, I do not know. I have not seen, uh, it not been brought to my notice. And just talking about those complaints, if you could briefly tell us the nature of the concerns that was brought up by the um, People's Alliance Party to the um, elections office? Uh, it is about the uh, various uh, programs that they put out, uh, which they have called the uh, Inflation Alleviation Program to assist uh, people with uh, direct uh, cash donations or cash uh, uh, gifts to facilitate uh, their own uh, livelihood, which they are doing as government. Uh, perhaps that's the way they looked at it. It is a government, and it's a government function to attempt to alleviate poverty in any any nation, any society. Uh, that's probably how they have interpreted that. But for us, it's the timing and the targeting of the areas uh, that uh, they have targeted at uh, created suspicion in our thoughts, uh, thus, uh, thus triggering our launching of our own complaints. And Mr. Mbuka, do you think that at this point the Fiji First Party is actively trying to knock out our political opponents out of the race before announcing the election date? Knock out or discourage uh, open uh, campaigning, which uh, can very effectively come into being with the uh, caution exercised by the various political parties, they will not be as free as uh, any democratic society enjoying freedom of speech. So they will feel that they have the sort of domicles hanging over their, their heads every time they go out. And just lastly, sir, um, what are your thoughts on the um, amendments to the Electoral Act? Uh, they, are, I, they, they, they are really just to you know, sort of tie down the hands and the feet of the opposition parties. Is that how you feel the intention is placed behind is, this act? That is the intention. They do not facilitate the smooth running of an election and its campaign. They just uh, hamper the progress of other political parties. For decades, Pacific Islands governments have fought tooth and nail to access the Australian and New Zealand labour markets. But with the demand for Pacific workers growing year on year and thousands more workers leaving the islands for increasingly longer periods of time, are Pacific leaders starting to question the wisdom of their miracle solution? In recent weeks, the governments of Samoa and Vanuatu have publicly voiced concerns of a labour and brain drain effect resulting from their participation in the Australian and New Zealand schemes. 
And there are also some questions being asked by Pacific Church and community leaders about the social and cultural costs of separating families for extended periods of time. Joining me to pick apart some of the issues is University of Auckland Associate Professor Yvonne Underhill-Sem, who is the head of the School of Pacific Studies at Te Wananga or Waipapa in the Faculty of Arts. Nisambolo Minaka and welcome on Pacific Waves, Yvonne. Tell us what you think of the concerns we're seeing some Pacific governments raising when it comes to their participation in the labour mobility schemes in Australia and New Zealand. Bulakaroi, nice to be able to talk to you about that. I think the thing we need to really understand is that this program, and whether it's in Australia or in New Zealand, is demand-driven. So the demand comes from Australia and New Zealand. And when you understand that it's demand-driven, you begin to see that those countries that are so-called supplying um, labourers or, or their citizens into this program have less um, less say in the kind of the number and the nature of that move. Now, that's not to say these countries in the past haven't promoted this. In fact, for many, many years, our Pacific countries have been wanting access to the New Zealand and to the Australian labour market. Um, I don't think they ever thought it would take this shape. Um, And so the kind of movement that they have now um, are now witnessing over this number of years is perhaps not the one that they really thought was going to bring the kind of prosperity and the um, the flourishing of our home economies, and I do, think. And do you um, mean by in in terms of volume or in terms of who's actually moving or what industries? I think both. I think in terms of volume, you know, for instance, I think it was in about twenty fifteen or twenty seventeen, sixteen around that time. Um, about twenty five percent of all Tongan men aged twenty to I uh, probably thirty nine that main age group, 25% of all Tongan men were on the REC scheme. That's a lot. And so the impact, and that's the figures we've got for Tonga. I'm sure there's more that we can find. But so when you've got 25% of of men in that working age group no longer working in 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 your country, the impacts are enormous. They're not just on the families, but they are significant. So the impact on the family is significant, not just dad going, but brother going, cousin going a whole range of people. It also has an impact on the community in terms of the key roles that men and, and you know, play, um, but also on the economy. So, you know, who is going to be driving the trucks on the wharf? Who is going to be doing um, doing that kind of work? So, you know, when you've got that number of people going and they're not just uneducated, uh, they're not just unskilled, they have skills. They have skills and they've got skills in Tonga and they're able to use those skills in Aotearoa. The question has to be whether this, there is a skill improvement while they're away that is going to somehow enhance the country, if not them, on their return. Um, and so I think the concerns are there. I know that various governments in the Pacific have tried to um, refine the kind of skills that they learn away and give workers incentives so that when they return, they may get a loan, they may find another way to use their, um, you know, and to incentivize them to consolidate the skills. Um, so I, I think what I want to say is that the workers who go there, they may be unskilled, but they're not really without skill. One of the things from my experience with Solomon Islands is because of the currency exchange, because of the amount of money these people are getting paid, it's not only 
attracting workers that are unemployed or that can't get work. It's actually attracting quite senior um, public and private sector workers. Absolutely. And this goes back again to the nature of our economies in each of our countries, really. Um, And, you know, wage rates have not increased. um, And our economies are in a situation where we cannot compete um, even to go from being, you know, highly skilled or relatively highly skilled in our countries, the rates that they're now going to get in, the, in New Zealand and Australia are, are far superior. And why wouldn't you? If, as many people say, the imperative to get involved in these is economic, then it's a no-brainer to say higher rates in Aotearoa New Zealand is going to attract anybody who's looking for a secure future for their family. Um, should they be able to do that? Should they not have the freedom to do that? Um, you know, that's a good question for everybody to ask. Who would want to deny somebody the right to do that? So I, I can see countries are now beginning to wonder, has this miracle of access to these two economies really enabled a shift in our economies back home? And mm. I think the other would say no, not necessarily. And so that's why we have the drain effect. Yeah. I'd like you to repeat that because I think that really gets to the nub of the question here. I think what I'm trying to say is that Pacific governments for a long time have wanted to have access to Australian New Zealand governments because they see that that access um, can benefit our countries. Um, as people go and they learn and they think and they earn some money and then they come back. So that's always been the kind of, um, that, that's been the understanding for t- many, many years since independence in most countries. What this scheme has done, though, because, as I said before, it's demand driven. When there's a need, the work, the employers will say, this is what we need in New Zealand and Australia. For our countries back home who are still struggling to have viable economies that can absorb young people, then it can can absorb the kind of energy that comes with our countries. Um, We're not, we haven't been able to do that. We haven't been able to craft an economy that can absorb them. And so, um, yes, we do need to allow our young people or anyone to respond to a better economic condition, no matter where they sit, no matter how much they belong to their country and how much they want to be there. The imperative to have better future for their family must now include consideration of a higher paid job on a re- in a seasonal um, employment program. And so, yeah, governments are worried and rightfully so. And then when you add other kind of um, difficulties around establishing the economies we want because of things like climate change, because of things like poor um, economic agreements, it just makes it very difficult for countries to really protect their citizens. So what I see happening here is a couple of countries that are trying to, obviously they would say they're trying to protect their citizens, but they're trying to protect their economies. That has been some of the rhetoric around it, is that actually, um, you know, our workers, some of them are being abused. We're not sure how well they're being looked after and, you know, we need to protect them. And so we're limiting. So I'm glad you raised that. And I'll sort of ask you to expand a bit on that. Is this, is this really about how much of this is about protecting workers from the Pacific government's perspective in terms of the limitations being put on quotas? Oh, well, I don't, I don't want to um, be disrespectful to our governments who, who, who's, who will see it as their obligation to protect their citizens. But the reality has been that they have allowed this to happen up until this point. 
Um, and I think they've begun to see the um, the problems that are happening in terms of families left behind, the social issues that are emerging. Um, initially, that wasn't even talked about. For workers, um, they traded the right to an income um, in New Zealand and Australia. Um, they traded that over the right to family life, the right to education of their children, the right to politically participate. So, so to me, this is like... Um, they were fully cognizant, Pacific governments were fully cognizant that this was a trade and labor arrangement. And the consequences of having that very narrow arrangement has got social, political, um, and cultural um, implications. If governments are not seeing it, certainly families and communities and churches are. Now, there is quite a broad area about um, the changes in the different schemes, Australian and New Zealand, but I would like to, in the in the scope of this conversation focus on one which is um, the recent changes in the Australian uh, scheme where they're allowing families to go over children to go over for a longer period of time but still having that period where they have to go home for a period yeah. before coming back uh, what do you think of, of that in in the why not just I guess my question is why not just have a, a work to residency scheme instead yeah. like Exactly. I totally agree with you. And so this is kind of a, a little bit of um, employers can sort of say, we've tried, you know, we've put this in, we've, we've responded to your demands to have that, to your requests. However, in the Australian situation in particular, it rubs up hard against policies that allow other workers from other regions and backpackers, for instance, from Europe in particular to come in. So it's only um, one refinement of a, 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 again, I would say a, um, a demand-led imperative to have more flexible mobile labour. Um, and so they're, they're the ones that are winning out. The the, the industry is winning out. Um, in, in Australia, as I said, that's only one of many ways in which the industry is going to win. So um, being able to say, yes, you can bring your family, but again, that presupposes we know who that family is. Who is the family? <laughs> so, you know, that kind of gets into a whole other question, you know, that I don't really want to kind of go anywhere. But that demonstrates the lack of understanding of what the what is happening when people move from the Pacific. We, we mentioned, uh, you said something interesting in our chat before we started this recording, which was about, they're always talking about the boxing the beneficiaries of this these schemes to the two countries involved and the workers but it, it's it's growing into its own thing other than that isn't it absolutely and so I did want to say you know initially and we've talked we've written about this initially um, it was an argument about a triple win this is a triple win issue the New Zealand government wins or the New Zealand economy wins the um, the Pacific country economy wins and the worker wins because they earn something however what we're trying to say there's another dimension and that is a dimension of all of that infrastructure that allows this to happen the people who provide the transport you know, the people who build the houses, the accommodation, the people that provide food. Um, so there, and this is in the in the countries, um, you know, where, where our workers are going. So there are, there's a whole complex of workers, of, of, there's a whole other infrastructure who are also winning when there's an increased number of workers. Um, on the other end, as I said, um, in the, our countries, there are also, as we know, there are, um, there are what are we called, recruiters. <laughs> So, you know, who do they work for? So they are also taking a little bit off this whole um, stream of, of, of resource that's flowing from one country to another. So we can't ignore that 
that um, fourth dimension of winners, mostly winners sitting in our um, in New Zealand and Australia. Um, there are also some winners, as I was saying before, in our Pacific countries who might be providing um, interim accommodation, people who come from the Marshall, you know, from Outer Island and, and come to stay in town. Maybe they're staying with their relatives, maybe they're staying somewhere else. So, um, so th this is kind of another area that we've got to look more closely at, and we cannot ignore pressure that might come from those, um, that category of, 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 of people to increase the number. But, you know, I, I guess I want to just kind of make sure that we're really clear that, you know, even when the worker travels and even then when, when their family does um, benefit with new houses and cars, et cetera, et cetera, the social and cultural costs are becoming more and more evident and we can no longer ignore those. And I think this is where some of the communities that I've heard of in Pacific countries saying we don't want our men to go anymore. And that takes me to the other point about the gendered nature of this. Um, so mostly they're men, but they're also opened up to women. And and in some ways, that's a very good thing. For instance, I do know that a group of Papua New Guinea women um, who were recruited because they were in a very vulnerable position in their own country and were able to be recruited as a group to go and work in Australia. You know, I would give that a tick because it is responding to a, um, a, a, a sort of a, a need in one of our countries in a really positive way. But I have a feeling that's a very small part of this whole construct. Um, finally, end it all. <laughs> We've got the, um, uh, again, thank you for the heads up on this as well. Pacific Labour Mobility Annual Meeting coming up uh, later this year um, in Apia. Um, what are your, what are, what are, what are you looking at with interest in terms of what will be discussed and, and things building up on the last meeting as well? I mean, look, as a researcher, I've been, along with a number of other key researchers in this area, have been really watching this space very carefully to look at the different ways in which um, this whole, as I said, construct of movement, this whole industry, this whole movement has got unintended consequences <laughs> for a range of our Pacific people. You know, what does it do with our communities? And, and part of the concern I have around that is that, for instance, we know a lot about the impacts of seafaring in Kiribati on generations of, of Ni Kiribati. Um, what is this going to mean for our generations of Pacific people whose family have been seasonal, have been away? So I'm, I'm really keen to um, keep asking that question and keep raising it in the context of urgencies that I know our governments are facing. Our governments are looking for ways to do things. We often don't have many options. Whether this is the one that we want to back, I'm not sure. But I think myself and other research, unfortunately, I won't be at the meeting. I have a research colleague who will be going, is really awaiting and a watching the extent to which governments in the Pacific are being able to capitalise on some aspects of this without selling their soul. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. More than Monday.